0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holiday Powers, the host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Pamela N. Corey about her new book, The City and Time Contemporary Art and Urban Form in Vietnam and Cambodia. Pamela, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Holly. Thank you so much for inviting me to um,
1: talk about my book today. Pamela, I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, So I am currently living in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Uh, So Ho Chi Minh Minh City being one of the sites that I talk about in the book. Uh, I'm an associate professor in uh, art and media studies at Fulbright University, Vietnam. Uh, Prior to this, I was lecturer or assistant professor in Southeast Asian art at SOAS University of London. So I was living in London for about five years before moving to Vietnam and uh, before that, I did my PhD at Cornell University. Um, so it's, it's nice to connect with Holly again, uh, as we were classmates. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I did my, my degree in art history with a focus on Southeast Asian art. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I can share a little bit about the origins of the book um, coming out of that experience. Um, essentially, the book comes out of my doctoral research as a Ph.D. student at Cornell. And um, the book actually focuses on about half of what I wrote for my doctoral dissertation. So the dissertation was actually double this material. So I ended up taking out about half of it and redeveloping and sort of refocusing the material uh, for the book. Um, so, yeah, maybe that's a good point to start talking about the book more specifically.
1: Well, so tell us how you came to focus on these two cities within your book, because the your book is really focused on Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, and. Phnom Penh. How did you how did you end up with that focus? Yeah, so
0: I guess it was during my doctoral coursework um, where I knew that I wanted to work on Vietnam and probably Cambodia. Um, Vietnam, because I had been long interested in, in Vietnam and contemporary art and visual studies in Vietnam. Uh, because I'm half Vietnamese. So back when I was a, a, a college student, I was studying art as a college student at UC Irvine. And that was a time when I was um, starting to think about how in our surveys of contemporary art at school, um, we really were focusing on very North American and European developments. And It made me curious about, you know, what artists were doing in other parts of the world. And because of my connection to Vietnam, I was especially interested in that. Um, You didn't really hear anything about Vietnam at that time in the late 1990s, other than what we knew about the war and sort of the images that came out of the war. And, you know, I had a lot of Vietnamese American friends. So I knew I kind of knew Vietnam from the perspective of an overseas Vietnamese or Vietnamese American so going into graduate school later with a focus on art history, I knew that I wanted to kind of pursue those questions about um, what artists in Vietnam were doing. Uh, so that was something I started to look into. I, I wanted to do more than just a, a very focused national study, though. I knew I wanted to do something comparative, maybe because at Cornell, I um, Within, you know, I, I was part of a community of people studying Southeast Asia. That's one of the things that Cornell's really known for is being like one of the, the one of the places in the world where you go to study Southeast Asia. So there was always um, encouragement to think comparatively, to think transnationally, to think across the region. So I was curious about what other artists in the region were doing, and having traveled to Cambodia a few times. Um, you know, I, it seemed to make sense to me um, to situate these practices in proximity to each other, because that's how it is in actuality. That's how it is geographically. There are neighboring countries, Saigon and Phnom Penh in particular, have a very sort of intimate historical geography. Um, where Saigon is used to be Cambodian land, Um so even though there's a border that divides the two nations, there's ways in which um, they feel very familiar, uh, or they they seem very sort of um, connected. Uh, there's a sense of a shared cultural, um, shared lingu- linguistic roots, even. Um, and then historically, there's a lot of parallels between those two cities as well in terms of key dates, you know, for. Um, sort of post-colonial periods and then also major uh, wartime upheavals. So I think ultimately, yeah, it came down to thinking about those two cities as a more feasible project of study than trying to do a comparative project where I look at like all of Vietnamese art and all of Cambodian art and try to encompass like those two massive national narratives. Um, I wanted to do something that was much more intimate and scaled down and also very specific in terms of thinking about locality. Um, And for me, it, it made sense to look at the cities together, not in a framework of comparison necessarily, but just thinking about possible connectivities, shared impulses, shared concerns, um, but also how a new generation of artists was responding to present-day circumstances with an eye towards the past and an eye towards the future as well um, in ways that I felt were somewhat similar across both sites. Um, so it wasn't just about, oh, these artists are all about the present, but you know it was about complicating the idea that these are post-war artists perpetually reverting to the past, and sort of working with the, the remainders of trauma, and, you know, the legacy of war. So that's always going to be there. But I, I wanted to complicate that and give more nuance to how artists were thinking about history, and time and the
1: present as well. Um, yeah. So in your introduction, you set out some of the main ideas that you're working with, with contemporary art, uh, with the idea of the urban form, but also thinking more specifically about how you are situating these artists with regard to this emphasis on trauma. Can you talk a bit about that?
0: Yeah, so um, I think... I felt that I wanted to do something that would address a little bit of a gap in the scholarship um, in terms of, you know, sort of what had been published in scholarship already, even though there wasn't a ton of material. um, But, you know, the kind of lens that was a predominant way of looking at artistic practices. In the region and particularly the countries that came out of French Indochina and then bore the brunt of you know the impacts of the Vietnam War Um, so the focus had always had predominantly been one of how are artists grappling with the past how are they grappling with trauma how are they grappling with societal reconstruction how are they um, attempting to rebuild society and culture Um, And some of this kind of work is also coming from a diasporic perspective and often a very personal diasporic perspective, you know, from artists in the U.S. or elsewhere for whom the work is very personal and sometimes auto ethnographic. Um, And I feel like that kind of scholarship was very sophisticated and theoretically informed and also helped to introduce the works of, you know, Vietnamese artists and Cambodian artists to the international community. Um, But I guess for me, I guess, you know, I'm Vietnamese American, my mother was a refugee. Um, It it still wasn't my overarching preoccupation. I I felt like there had to be other ways of looking at artistic practices, especially because there were so many artists who were doing work that wasn't about the war, wasn't about trauma and memory. So I felt like that discourse was becoming very well established and it was very rich, but surely it's, it can't be the overshadowing discourse or it can't be the discourse. You know, there's gotta be more, especially because we need to do justice to what artists are doing as practitioners and, you know, how they're not just making work, um, as an instrument of psychological healing, but the work is also expressive of um, shared interests in materiality, in technology, in you know, a lot of the things that we talk about when we talk about what global contemporary artists are doing um, in the late 20th and early 21st century. So I think part of the impetus was for me, because I, I was a studio art major, I was taught by contemporary artists. I was you know I, I had a, I had training in really working with materials and really being lost in process. I think I wanted to convey something of that with the book to really think about process and environment and site and materials. And what became apparent to me um, when I was doing my research was how important those questions were for artists and how responsive they were to their present day environment and their engagement with community, um, their, their roles as witnesses or sort of spectators to everything going on around them and the, you know, how they were interested in documenting um, the present, Um, as well as reflecting on the past, but not just reflecting on the uh, past of trauma, but reflecting on the past as something very mm, multidimensional and layered. And, you know, um, how to engage with those layers of history and those episodes of different kinds of moments, post-colonialism and independence, uh, socialism, post-socialism, um, modernism, how they were kind of constellating all of those temporalities, rather than just looking back at the past in a more deterministic way, I guess, Um So, yeah, I I maybe I hope that answers your question.
1: (laughs) Could you talk also just a bit about this idea of urban form and what you mean by urban form?
0: Yeah. So I guess like I the the term urban form came to me as a way of, I think, trying to be a bit more specific about um, artistic engagements with the city that were very um material and very plastic in a sense um rather than referring to urban aesthetics and urban imaginaries as something far more collective something very phenomenological something very philosophical and something that could bring into the fold a broader spectrum of discussion maybe like about fashion or um you know sort of new architecture um maybe you know film that kind of thing i do talk about film in my book there's one discussion of film but i think i really wanted to bring it down to the kinds of things the kinds of forms that artists were actually looking at and making work out of or you know making work in so like a, a very a specific building or a specific street sign or a billboard or um, a kind of uh, everyday routine. So I kind of wanted to pinpoint these specific um, things and spaces that artists were working with rather than um, perhaps getting to a a higher level, maybe a different scale of representation, which for me, I felt urban imaginaries and urban aesthetics um, uh, referred to. So even though those are, you know, incredibly useful concepts for me. And I feel like I, 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 you know, you can't not engage with those ideas. For me, I wanted to get down to the plasticity of something very specific, which is why I wanted to use this term form, because of course that also has resonance for us as art historians. Um, We're really thinking about, you know, the material, plastic, visual sort of concrete elements of an image or, you know, perhaps a space or something like that.
1: In your first chapter, you start with Saigon and you talk about an affective or emotional relationship to the city. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, that was something that um, came out of a lot of conversations and interviews, sometimes more informal uh, conversations and sometimes more structured interviews, but it it seemed to be a recurring preoccupation with talking about um, emotion and uh, feeling. And, you know, no one actually used the term affect, but it was often alluded to in other ways, you know, Um, hanging out with artists, talking about films from the nineties and saying, overhearing them say how real, Ciclo, um, this film by French-Vietnamese filmmaker, Trần Anh Hùng. Um, you know, Ciclo is the film that I talk about in the book. And that one is very visceral and very intense, very artistic, uh, you know, very violent, very saturated. Um, but that's the one that they pinpoint as being the most real kind of portrait of Saigon in the 1990s. And so I was interested in that, like, you know, why, why that film? It, one could even say that that film is like hyperbolic in terms of its intensities and its visceral sort of, you know, um, aesthetics. But that's the one that they pinpoint as being the most real kind of portrait of Saigon in the 1990s, um, because it captured a feeling, a feeling of what it was like to be in Saigon at that time or in Vietnam at that time. Um so I think it's, you know, I was sort of led to these overarching concepts for the chapters through the artworks, you know, and that's one of the things, too, when we talk about urban form, and I'm, I'm focusing on form, that form is really what helped me organize the book. Um, and so it, you know, it seemed to make sense to talk about uh, a number of artworks that shared that preoccupation with um, examining emotion and, um, examining affects whether it's very literal in the work itself or it's something that came out of a lot of conversations with the artists where it's the you know they somehow were committed to a process that really made them feel um feel pain physically or feel uh you know strong emotions to the point where you know a process of making would bring them to tears that kind of thing um but also the kinds of feelings that the artwork is meant to engender in the viewer, perhaps a specific kind of feeling it's meant to engender in a local viewer um, with certain kinds of references, certain kinds of cues um, and signs. Um, So yeah, that chapter was one that was, uh, for me, spoke to the specificity of the city to Saigon as a kind of nostalgic sign for so many Vietnamese and for Vietnamese in the diaspora in particular. Um, but also a way to think about national belonging through the image of the city and how, you know, that can be a site of con- contest uh, contestation as well, you know, particularly in the way that the, you know, diasporic Vietnamese see Saigon as the real Vietnam, as opposed to the actual political capital of Vietnam today, which is Hanoi. Um, so that's where I kind of get into history a little bit, but what I'm very interested in is the, the ways in which artists were examining affect and emotion as methods, as well as topics. Um, so I get into a little bit of discussion of nostalgia and you know thinking through Svetlana Boehm's theorization of nostalgia as well. Um, I found that very useful. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how that came together for the first chapter. Could you,
1: could you give us an example of one of the artworks that you talk about within that chapter?
0: Yeah, so let me think. There's a few. Perhaps the opening one, I feel, is um, really good for disaggregating affect and emotion. Um, and that's a work by an artist and curator and translator named Nguyen Yehui who um, used to be based in Saigon. And it's a video work where he recruited some actors, um, quite a few of whom were very well-known Vietnamese actors in domestic Vietnamese cinema. And um, he just basically asked them to cry. (laughs) And, you know, against them, it's very intense. It's just them sitting there, not looking into the camera, but kind of looking off into the distance a little bit. And they just really slowly start to cry. But it's so slow. It's it's almost painfully, uncomfortably slow, you, you, you know, watching someone's face up close. As they, you know, the muscles begin to configure and tears start to form and you're just staring at them. There's an incongruity, too, with the soundtrack that's being played in the background, which feels very commercial and very like very fast paced. And it's all very weird. Um, But that was something that, you know, he he talks about emotionality in his statement for the piece. Um, and also thinking about age and physicality and a certain generation of Vietnamese that he felt could, could, could follow that cue perhaps more successfully. Um, and so for me, it had to do, you know, he also talks about sort of this idea of hollowness and surface and depth in terms of Vietnamese society today. Um, so for me, there were things he talked about in his prompt, which, um, his prompt to the artists and his statement for the piece that made me think about how he's really breaking down this idea of, you know, or he's really kind of separating out affect versus emotion. Um, you know, and it it presents a kind of what came first, you know, the chicken or the egg question, um, that I talk about more in the book. Um, so I guess that's an example of one work and for me that that served as a kind of good introductory work to then get into this question of affect and emotion as, you know, these key preoccupations of a number of the works in that chapter.
1: Your second chapter then focuses more on actual interventions into the city or using the um maybe aesthetics or images of the city, of also staying with Saigon. So the first half of the book really focuses on Saigon. Can you tell us about the second chapter?
0: Yeah, so the second chapter, um, well, if the first chapter brings the idea of Saigon, Vietnam into dialogue through a lot of reflective um, sort of uh, phenomenological artworks that think about how the image of the city is imbued with affect and nostalgia. Um, The second one has to do with, in a sense, um, artists, well, on the one hand, artists really looking at the streets, really looking at the streetscapes as graphic regimes, with layers of history. So really looking at the street as a, a kind of socialist landscape, an urban socialist landscape, um, and reworking that iconography in a sense. So artists uh, kind of playing around with the icon iconography of uh, socialist visuality as it plays out in everyday streetscapes. Um, so there's that on the one hand, and then I included some examples of artists who are who actually tried to do direct interventions into public space, which is a little bit rare. It's quite rare in Vietnam, actually, because there are tight controls over uh, public space, and people do feel surveilled in public space here. There's a very strict system of exhibition licensing, which really um, allows the the Ministry of Culture, Tourism, and Sport to very tightly control what gets shown publicly, you know, Um, and that's where a lot of censorship happens, is at the level of this licensing process. Mm -hmm. So it's the same in terms of, you know, what can happen in urban space. Um, They have particular groups of, you know, um, municipal authorities that are out there to make sure that there's a sense of urban order. And, you know, um, one of the aspirations of late socialist Vietnam is to civilize urban space, you know, as part of a larger uh, process of modernization. Um, So I looked at a couple examples where artists did try to create these kinds of bold interventions into actual public space. One of those um, is a very important project by Din Cule called Damaged Gene, which does reflect on the Vietnam War, in particularly, uh, particularly the legacy of um, the use of Agent Orange and dioxin, uh, which was sprayed over um, parts of Vietnam and even, you know, parts of Cambodia and Laos um, as a chemical that you know is a it's a defoliant so it was meant to eradicate the jungle sort of growth that could be used to to shelter and hide um communist troops um but what that did was you know um leave toxic effects in the soil and the people for generations afterwards and so one of the effects is congenital malformations in children um, it's really horrific to see uh, the results of that in terms of children who were, um, you know, born after the war and even the effects on their children. And this is something that also affected American veterans as well. Um, So in this one work, Dinculé wanted to address that history, which was uh, a history that was being silenced on both sides. So, The U.S. government, you know, did not acknowledge their responsibility um, for this damage for a long time. Actually, I don't even know if they if they have yet to really acknowledge um, the scale of the damage that was caused by that. And then at the time, the Vietnamese government didn't want to draw too much attention to this because they were a rising exporter of rice and other agricultural products. And of course, you don't want word to get out that the soil is toxic because of, you know, dioxin. Um, So Din wanted to address that in in his work called Damaged Gene, which was actually um, a kind of installation that he set up in a public marketplace. You know, he rented a stall at a shopping center and for one month he was selling these um, little toy babies that were conjoined twins, you know? So that was one of the effects of dioxin were conjoined twins. Um, and also, you know, clothing for conjoined twins, um, pacifiers, glasses. Um, there was also clothing, you know, T-shirts and things for adults that were embroidered with the names of the, co- uh, the companies that had produced dioxin. Um, so that was a very bold kind of public intervention. And so I felt like that. And that was 1998. And that, you know, um, Vietnam really only began to... Um, enter into a kind of late stage of globalization in the 1990s. And that was something that was enabled by the economic reforms that happened in the late 80s, and then with the normalization of relations with the United States in, in 1994. So it's only after that, really, that artists from the diaspora began to return to Vietnam. So that work was 1998. So it's considered really a very early work and a very significant one in terms of being perhaps one of the first public art interventions um, in Vietnamese art history. Um, so those are some examples of the works that look more at you know, the actual, uh, actual urban public space, you know, whether it's artists who are preoccupied with the, sort of the socialist visuality of um, public space, uh, to those who are actually kind of testing out how far you could go with trying to do a public intervention and you know to do public art, essentially. So, yeah.
1: Can you be, So your first two chapters are focused on the same city, but you describe the city as Saigon in your first chapter and Ho Chi Minh City uh, in the second chapter. Can you talk about just the difference between those two names and when they're yes. used? Sorry. No, thank you for asking
0: that, because I know that's that's something that's very specific to being in Vietnam or being from Vietnam is what you choose to call the city. So it's I'm glad you asked that because I, I forget to explain it. So um, Saigon is the name of the city um, since basically like French colonialism. It became their capital of the south or their administrative unit of Cochin, China, when Vietnam was split into three administrative units. Um, But it became the name that, you know, it was the name of the city up until uh, 1975, really, or 1976. So 1975 is the year that, um, well, just to go back a little bit, in 1954, um, when Vietnamese forces basically defeated the French, okay? So the French had been trying to get back their colony, their colonies after Japanese occupation, after the defeat of, you know, the Japanese at the end of World War II. Um, The French wanted to come back in, okay? Because Japan had occupied much of Southeast Asia uh, during, towards the end of World War II. Um, When the Japanese left, the French wanted to come back in, And regain their territories Uh, but so that that was the start of the uh, first Indochina war and that culminated in the Battle of Dien Bien Phu where the Vietnamese basically defeated the French which resulted in the Geneva Accord um, which split Vietnam into a north and south divided at the 17th parallel and the south was meant to be a kind of democratic state And the North was, you know, they allowed that the North to be a kind of communist state. Um, There were aspirations. Well, the idea was that this was a temporary division and that, you know, elections would be held to unify the country and to elect a national leader. But that's not really what happened. If anything, the division became very entrenched. There was a lot of political machinations happening. It was far more complex than just communist versus non communist. Um, but Saigon became the capital of South Vietnam. And because South Vietnam enjoyed a period of post colonial independence, as opposed to the North, which was communist. Um, The post-colonial independence of the South was quite cosmopolitan, quite international, non-communist. And that period, 1954 to 1975, is considered by many Vietnamese to be, have been kind of a golden period in a way. A lot of diasporic Vietnamese really look to that as, you know, that was their country, you know, Saigon in the post-colonial period the music, the visual culture, you know, the literature that came out of that. 1975 is, you know, um, when Vietnamese communist forces took Saigon, which, you know, and this was after American forces had left. All American forces had left by 1973, okay, which paved the way for a communist incursion and basically um, what many call the liberation of Saigon In, you know, in Vietnam, they call it the liberation of Saigon, the reunification of the country for diasporic Vietnamese. It's the fall of Vietnam. Okay. April 30th, 1975. And so with the fall or the liberation of Saigon, um, the name was changed to Ho Chi Minh City the year after to reflect a new kind of socialist regime, um, to try to get rid of the vestiges of colonialism that the new communist state saw in Saigon, so getting rid of the name, renaming it Ho Chi Minh City. However, a lot of Vietnamese who are from the South, you know, born during that time, will still call it Saigon. A lot of local Vietnamese still call it Saigon. Some get very angry if you call it Ho Chi Minh City, even. So this still comes up where they say, I'm so glad you're calling it Saigon and not Ho Chi Minh City. but i use the two terms to kind of talk about temporality you know and also to reflect on perspective you know so if we're talking about a diasporic artist who's making work about post-colonial saigon we call it saigon but after 1976 it's officially ho chi minh city so a very simple question that ended up getting a very complicated answer so i'm sorry about that the history is complex
1: (laughs) In the second part of the book, you then shift your focus to Phnom Penh, and you start ch- with chapter three, focusing on the documentary impulse within Cambodia, and you talk about documentary, but you also talk a bit about the history of Cambodia. Can you tell us about both of those? Yeah, so I try
0: to do a bit of mirroring between the two sections, So, for example, chapter one is maybe where I talk about, um, you know, the history of Saigon as part of the history of Vietnam. So I'm trying to situate the situating the city within the nation. Right. Or the narrative of the nation. So I tried to do something similar in chapter three, which is the first chapter in the Cambodia section so thinking about the narrative of Cambodian art history as a narrative of Phnom Penh, really, um, you can't disentangle the sort of story of modern and contemporary art in Cambodia from a more specific history of the city of Phnom Penh, um, as the capital of the country and a site of its art, its major art institutions. Um, so yes, there's that, that, serves as important context for the discussion of why uh, many of the practices we associate as emergent contemporary art practices in Vietnam were really anchored in photography like why why photography why was photography the the thing that so many young Cambodians turn to as a means to kind of cross the thre- the threshold into contemporary art because it you know we have a lot of artists who did have, formal training at art schools uh you know in cambodia it would have been the royal university of fine arts but then a number of artists who are very well known today who didn't have that kind of formal training in painting or sculpture for example um, but who began to train as artists through these photography workshops that were offered by individual photographers or at uh, foreign cultural spaces kinds of alternative sites that were not, you know, sort of formidable institutions like a Royal University of Fine Arts. Um, And photography, it seemed for them, was really key to uh, their fascination with the idea of the documentary um, and documentation, which would seem to be kind of conditioned by the cultural climate of, let's call it, you know, post Khmer Rouge or post-transition Cambodia Um, so in terms of historical context, you know, I talked about how 1975, April 1975 was a momentous historical episode in Vietnam it's the same case in Cambodia because April 15th, 1975 marks the point where after years of political instability and civil war, the Khmer Rouge, which is a very radicalized uh, kind of extremist communist Um, political formation uh, led by Saloth Sar, otherwise known as uh, Pol Pot, converges on the cities and end up taking over the cities and evacuating all the city residents, you know, so imagine evacuating a whole city the capital of Cambodia, and basically forcing people out into the countryside to work um, in hard labor. Because the vision was the the idea was that they would transform Cambodia into a kind of radical extremist vision of a sort of collective agricultural utopia, you know, sort of the most extreme version of communism you can imagine, um, which went which went horribly wrong, right? It led to the deaths of over two million people, um, and that's what we call the genocide, right? So. Um, In the wake of 1979, which is when Vietnamese forces who, you know, Vietnam and Cambodia had now been at war for a couple years, um, Vietnamese forces actually went into Cambodia in 1975 and ousted the Khmer Rouge, okay, overthrew Pol Pot's regime. But they also occupied Cambodia for the next 10 years, um... And it was called the People's Republic of Kampuchea or the PRK. So Cambodia was actually kind of occupied by Vietnam, became a socialist state in, uh, in name, at least, um, for 10 years. Um, and after that, there was a period in which Cambodia transitioned out of socialism into what was supposed to become a democratic state um, with the support of the United Nations um, Untac, the United Nations Transitional Authority Coalition. I think that's, uh, uh, it's been a while, but I'm pretty sure that's the acronym. <laughs> um, and so basically what happened in the 1990s was a period of really like major societal rebuilding. Um, the devastation to the country was so extreme. It's hard to imagine, you know, imagine the National Library was used to keep farm animals and pigs and things like that. Um, So this was a period of massive economic rebuilding, but also um, it was a period in which there was a a real sort of, um, I guess, transnational international efforts to rebuild society through, um, you know, creating new institutions of record keeping and archive building and documentation, real focus on documentation to rebuild all that was lost during four years of devastation and, and genocide. Um, so, one might say, okay, uh, young Cambodian artists were building on that climate of cultural preservation and documentation, but they were using documentation as, as a form of contemporary art. They saw their documentation, you know, their, their photographic work. As documentary practice and as conceptual practice. So, a lot of artists described what they were doing as conceptual art because of what they were choosing to document and how they were choosing to document and the ways in which they were using photography. So, for me, that was um, something to focus on for that chapter how they're using art as a documentary form to also shift the ways that we were looking, you know, people are looking at their work. Um, looking at photographs as art, but also using the photographs to look at the city, to look at Cambodia in different ways.
1: Can you give us an example of one of the artists or artworks you talk about?
0: Yeah, so I think in that chapter, I spent quite a bit of time talking about Bondi Ratana, because Ratana was considered a, a somewhat more senior figure who was a mentor to a new generation of artists who are now themselves mentors in the art scene and have become sort of global contemporary artists. Um, But Ratana was someone who kind of brought them together and uh, according to what I heard, you know, kind of got them thinking about how to use photography as an instrument of art making, but also documentation, also as one of activism in a sense. So I talk about uh, Ratana's development as a photographer and an artist, um, by looking at his broader practice and where he started out as a photographer, um, in the city doing almost like journalistic photography, but, um, something that was certainly, you know, um, in a way deeper, deeper than journalistic photography. It was, it was clear that he was kind of developing his own sense of an artistic eye through these documentary photographic projects, um, that were really rooted in, uh, things that were going on in Phnom Penh. So it's really like he was documenting, document, uh, documenting the city and um, urban crises and things like that. And then I kind of talk about how that then evolved into something different where he wanted to leave the city. He wanted to leave that kind of space behind and go to the countryside instead. So I talk about some of his images of... Um, The countryside and the rural and why he turned away from the city so it seems to depart a little bit from the focus on urban form but for me there's a connection there in that i feel that urban form was a catalyst for this turn and it also shaped some of his methods his eye as a photographer his interest in scale and a narrative towards a different kind of space you know towards the countryside instead um, so that's that's one of the the artists that I focus on in that chapter.
1: In your final chapter, you stay with a focus on Phnom Penh, but then move to architecture and performance in thinking about uh, the relationship between the post-colonial and the contemporary. Can you talk to us a bit about that?
0: Yeah, so something that um, was very... Uh, prevalent when I was living in Phnom Penh was, uh, across the board, a number of projects that were very interested in um, recuperating and documenting and archiving the post-colonial past. So not, you know, moving before, going back to a period before um, the Khmer Rouge. Right, And looking to what similarly in Saigon was considered sort of the post-colonial golden period. And I think this is across the board in a lot of colonies, right, where after independence, there is perceived to be a kind of golden period of post-colonial culture. Um, it was just the same for Phnom Penh. Where after independence from the French, um, there was a massive project of nation building, right? And arts and culture were seen as crucial to that project of nation building, where the city becomes a it becomes a theater in a sense for performing, you know, um, new Cambodian national identity through dance, through you know, architecture, through the urban plan, um, through film, for example. And one of, you know, um, Cambodia's great claims to having participated in global modernism is the architectural movement called the the New Khmer Architecture that was really sort of pioneered by a Beaux-Arts-trained architect, Van Molivan. So he... um, one could say he and others spearheaded a kind of movement where Phnom Penh becomes built into a kind of exemplary city with these examples of architecture that blend Corbusian modernism with other sort of vernacular motifs, right? And um uh so when I was looking when I was living in Phnom Penh, I noticed that a lot of artists were really interested in. And drawing attention to that heritage, especially because a lot of that heritage has been destroyed, right? And there are concerns that the state does not care for that heritage as much as locals and artists and researchers do. I think this is the case in a lot of places, right? So one of the ways that our, you know contemporary artists were doing something almost like a, a kind of historiographical project was trying to literally connect with those remnants of the new Khmer architecture by inhabiting it and creating art spaces in those buildings. And so one key structure for that is what was called the building or the white building, um, which at the time I was living there had become a very sort of a, uh, um, very decrepit structure where most of the repairs and maintenance were done by the residents themselves, you know, so there wasn't electricity in parts of the building, Um, the infrastructure was deteriorating, it was constantly under threat of demolition by the state, it was in the center of Phnom Penh, the land was very valuable, and like many other parts of Phnom Penh, it was at risk of being demolished and the residents being relocated um, so that they could sell the land for a new development. This was the case with a lake that was actually sold off and filled with sand to you know to develop to create a high-rise development so that's how extreme it was that you would get rid you would actually the government would actually sell off a lake get rid of a key aspect of the the city's ecology you know to turn it into the commodity to you know sort of you know real estate um So, yeah, I talk about an example of this is the ways in which this one artist collective um, set up an artist space in the building. One of these old ramshackle buildings that had been a real jewel in terms of, you know, post-colonial architectural modernism, but really used it as a way to leverage connecting communities, you know, communities within the building. It was an apartment building. And communities outside the building to connect with residents inside, also to archive the history of the building and, you know, as part of a project of documenting and creating knowledge about the new Khmer architecture, Um, the building as a site for performance, as well as a a venue for sound art projects. So they were doing a lot of things that um, I thought were fascinating and really connected architecture with the body a lot of work that was very embodied very um physical and experiential and sensory so um that was a catalyst for the chapter thinking about the ways in which contemporary artists were connecting that post-colonial past with the present um and also uh, kinds of works that were very embodied and performance-based um uh immaterial or ephemeral in a sense um, compared to the previous chapter, which focuses really on uh, visual documentation and the project of photography. But there's there's definitely overlaps between the two um, for sure.
1: The book then ends with a conclusion that focuses on questions of comparative uh, methods and comparative projects. Can you talk to us a bit about the way in which you end the book?
0: Um, I can try. <laughs> um, I guess I left the end of the book as a kind of opening rather than a conclusion, to be honest. Um, in a way, the the conclusion or the epilogue um, for me was a way to branch into some of the questions that I'm still thinking about and ways in which I I kind of tried to leave the book a bit unresolved in terms of how well does this method of comparison work you know um, have I managed to bypass the, the framework of judgment that usually accompanies comparison is it possible to use a comparative framework in a very relational rather than evaluative way? Um, How can it be fruitful? So in a way, I feel like I concluded with a lot of questions that I am still grappling with. And um, yeah, I guess also, I wanted to leave it open for a lot of other projects, other kinds of comparisons to take place, whether, you know, we, we think about certain frameworks that would allow for a productive discussion of artworks between Hanoi and Saigon the two major cities that maybe are seen in competition with each other sometimes or whether there are other ways of thinking about regional comparison that allow us to bypass sort of established area studies frameworks you know um so yeah I don't have a great answer for this because I feel like I didn't want my epilogue to be conclusive I wanted it to be um I wanted it to be kind of unresolved. I wanted to just throw a lot of questions out there. So maybe that's not the the greatest thing to do for a conclusion,
1: but I don't know. Um, That's what I did. (laughs) Well, Pamela, we have taken up so much of your time. Picking up on questions you are still grappling with, can you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Yeah, so I don't have one major project at the moment. I've got kind of a few things going on. being back in Vietnam has helped me really train my lens on, you know, sort of working again on Vietnam and being on site in Vietnam, what artists on the ground are doing. Because when I was in London, I ended up kind of doing some research that, you know, was informed by being in London and having the opportunity to meet a lot of fantastic artists uh, from the South, from Southeast Asia who are based in London or, you York part of the diaspora in London. Um, So coming back to Vietnam has enabled me to to pick up some projects that are very specific to Vietnam. So um, there's one in which I'm co-editing a critical reader on contemporary art in Vietnam that is meant to be very educational, also meant to be very uh, public facing in terms of serving Vietnamese students um, and maybe something that can be used for teaching um, Vietnamese undergrads. So it's a project where we're thinking about translation. It has to be bilingual and we're thinking about it, you know, in a very educational way. Um, I've got another project where I'm working with a, a collective of editors. We're trying to put together a textbook on global modernism, and that's a massive, massive project. So I'm kind of attending to the Southeast Asia side of things Um so that's another one. And then I've got some writing to do. Um, one in which I will extend some of the questions that I, you know used in the epilogue for the book, thinking about the graphic regime, but also uh, sort of the relationship between image and text, and the sort of the ways in which artists were using writing, really preoccupied with writing as part of art. Um, part of the image in uh, the 1990s in Vietnam and in Hanoi in particular. So that's, uh, that's one article project. And then I've got another one where I'm kind of examining an idea of para history. So I'm trying to theorize a concept of para history, um, basically folding one time into another as that is evoked in a number of artists' works, artists from Vietnam. So that's a, a paper that I'm working on and that's titled The, um, the Purpose of Parahistory in Late Socialist Vietnam. So um, I'm sort of going in a bunch of different directions at the moment, but hopefully I'll, I'll begin work on a more centralized, consolidated, big second book project soon once all these other projects are done.
1: It all sounds wonderful. Thank you so much, Pamela, for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, Holly.